We want to hear from you. Help us determine which books to read on the Sleepy Bookshelf by voting on our website, sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's always a pleasure to have you here with me. Tonight we'll be returning to Little Women, but before we do that, take a moment here to breathe and relax. Focus on resting your muscles. Inhale, squeezing your shoulders up to your ears for a moment, then drop them down fully on your exhale. Take a nice, big stretch. Now focus on clearing your mind. Inhale deeply and gather together any worries or concerns. Now exhale fully and let them all go. Last time you were here, the family were all ready for Meg's wedding day to Mr. Brooke. It was a simple affair, much to Aunt March's chagrin, but the bride and groom were so happy that everyone thought it was the loveliest wedding they had been to. At the end of the day, Meg had a tearful goodbye with her mother and walked away with her new husband, to start her sweet married life in her sweet little house. Amy was budding into a true artist, trying her hand at all sorts of mediums. She'd been going to a professional art class paid for her by Aunt March, where she had met some particularly wealthy young women. As she so desperately wanted to move in these social circles, she invited them all to her home for an artistic fate. She had convinced her mother that she would supply the banquet and hire the buggy to take the group out into the countryside nearby to sketch and paint with her own money. She wanted to wrangle in help from the whole family, and Joe was determined to talk her out of it. However, Invitations were sent nonetheless, and Amy had her mind set. Tonight we pick our story up with Amy making her preparations. So just close your eyes and listen to the sound of my voice. Chapter 26 Artistic attempts continued. To begin with, Hannah's cooking didn't turn out well. The chicken was tough, the tongue too salty, and the chocolate wouldn't froth properly. Then the cake and ice cost more than Amy expected. So did the wagon and various other expenses, which seemed trifling at the outset counted up rather alarmingly afterward, 
Beth got a cold and took to her bed. Meg had an unusual number of callers to keep her at home, and Joe was in such a divided state of mind that her breakages, accidents, and mistakes were uncommonly numerous, serious, and trying. If it was not fair on Monday, the young ladies were going to come on Tuesday, an arrangement which aggravated Joe and Hannah to the last degree. On Monday morning, the weather was in that undecided state, which is more exasperating than a steady pour. It drizzled a little, shone a little, blew a little, and didn't make up its mind till it was too late for anyone else to make up theirs. Amy was up at dawn, hustling people out of their beds and through their breakfasts, that the house might be got in order. The parlour struck her as looking uncommonly shabby, but without stopping to sigh for what she had not, she skillfully made the best of what she had, arranging chairs over the worn places in the carpet, covering stains on the walls with homemade statuary, which gave an artistic air to the room, as did the lovely vases of flowers Joe scattered about. The lunch looked charming, and as she surveyed it, she sincerely hoped it would taste well and that the borrowed glass, china, and silver would get safely home again. The carriages were promised. Meg and Mother were all ready to do the honours. Beth was able to help Hannah behind the scenes. Joe had engaged to be as lively and amiable as an absent mind and aching head and a very decided disapproval of everybody and everything would allow. And as she wearily dressed, Amy cheered herself with anticipations of the happy moment when, lunch safely over, she should drive away with her friends for an afternoon of artistic delights, for the cherry bounce and the broken bridge were her strong points. Then came the hours of suspense, during which she vibrated from parlour to porch while public opinion varied like the weathercock. A smart shower at eleven had evidently quenched the enthusiasm of the young ladies who were to arrive at twelve, for nobody came, and at two, the exhausted family sat down in a blaze of sunshine to consume the perishable portions of the feast that nothing might be lost. No doubt about the weather today. They will certainly come, so we must fly around and be ready for them, said Amy as the sun woke her next morning. She spoke briskly, but in her secret song, she wished she had said nothing about Tuesday, for her interest, like her cake, was getting a little stale. I can't get any lobsters, so you will have to do without salad today, said Mr. March, coming in half an hour later 
with an expression of placid despair. Use the chicken then. Toughness won't matter in a salad, advised his wife. Hannah left it on the kitchen table a minute, and the kittens got at it. I'm very sorry, Amy, added Beth, who was still a patroness of cats. Then I must have a lobster. The tongue alone won't do, said Amy decidedly. Shall I rush into town and demand one? Asked Joe with the magnanimity of a martyr. Oh, you'd come bringing it home under your arm without any paper, just to try me. I'll go myself, answered Amy, whose temper was beginning to fail. Shrouded in a thick veil and armed with a genteel travelling basket, she departed, feeling that a cool drive would soothe her ruffled spirit and fit her for the labours of the day. After some delay, the object of her desire was procured, likewise a bottle of dressing to prevent further loss of time at home, and off she drove again, well pleased with her own forethought. As the omnibus contained only one other passenger, a sleepy old lady, Amy pocketed her veil and beguiled the tedium of the way by trying to find out where all her money had gone to. So busy was she with her card, full of refractory figures, that she did not observe a newcomer who entered without stopping the vehicle till a masculine voice said, Good morning, Miss March. And looking up, she beheld one of Laurie's most elegant college friends. Fervently hoping that he would get out before she did, Amy utterly ignored her basket at her feet and congratulating herself that she had on her new travelling dress, returned the young man's greeting with her usual suavity and spirit. They got on excellently, for Amy's chief care was soon set at rest by learning that the gentleman would leave first, and she was chatting away in a peculiarly lofty strain when the old lady got out. In stumbling to the door, she upset the basket and oh, horror, the lobster in all its vulgar size and brilliancy was revealed to the high-born eyes of a Tudor. Oh, by Jove, she's forgotten her dinner, said the unconscious youth, poking the scarlet monster into its place with his cane and preparing to hand out the basket after the old lady. Please don't. It's... it's mine, murmured Amy, with a face nearly as red as her fish. Oh, really? I beg pardon. It's an uncommonly fine one, isn't it? Said Tudor, with great presence of mind and an air of sober interest that did credit to his breeding. Amy recovered herself in a breath 
set her basket boldly on the seat and said, laughing, Don't you wish you were to have some of the salad he's going to make and see the charming young ladies who are going to eat it? Now that was tact, for two of the ruling foibles of the masculine mind were touched. The lobster was instantly surrounded by a halo of pleasing reminiscences and curiosity about the charming young ladies diverted his mind from the comical mishap. I suppose he'll laugh and joke over it with Laurie, but I shan't see them. That's a comfort, thought Amy as Tudor bowed and departed. She did not mention this meeting at home, though she discovered that thanks to the upset, her new dress was much damaged by the rivulets of dressing that meandered down her skirt, but went through the preparations which now seemed more irksome than before, and at twelve o'clock, all was ready again. Feeling that the neighbours were interested in her movements, she wished to efface the memory of yesterday's failure by a grand success today. So she ordered the cherry bounce and drove away in state to meet and escort her guests to the banquet. There's the rumble. They're coming. I'll go onto the porch and meet them. Looks hospitable and I want the poor child to have a good time after all her trouble, said Mrs. March, suiting the action to the word. But after one glance, she retired with an indescribable expression, for looking quite lost in the big carriage sat Amy and one young lady. Run, Beth, and help Hannah clear half the things off the table, It would be too absurd to put a luncheon for twelve before a single girl, said Joe, hurrying away to the lower regions, too excited to stop even for a laugh. In came Amy, quite calm and delightfully cordial to the one guest who had kept her promise. The rest of the family, being of a dramatic turn, played their parts equally well, and Miss Elliot found them a most hilarious set, for it was impossible to control entirely the merriment which possessed them. The remodelled lunch being happily partaken of, the studio and garden visited, and art discussed with enthusiasm, Amy ordered a buggy alas, the elegant cherry bounce, and drove her friend quietly about the neighborhood till sunset when the party went out. As she came walking in, looking very tired but as composed as ever, she observed that every vestige of the unfortunate fate had disappeared except a suspicious pucker about the corners of Joan's mouth. You have had a lovely afternoon for your drive, dear, said her mother, as respectfully as if the whole twelve had come. 
Miss Elliot is a very sweet girl, and seemed to enjoy herself, I thought, observed Beth with unusual warmth. Could you spare me some of your cake? I really need some. I have so much company, and I can't make such delicious stuff as yours, asked Meg soberly. Take it all. I'm the only one here who likes sweet things, and it will mold before I can dispose of it, answered Amy with a sigh, thinking of the generous store she had laid in for such an end as this. It's a pity Laurie isn't here to help us, began Joe as they sat down to ice cream and salad for the second time in two days. A warning look from her mother checked any further remarks, and the whole family ate in heroic silence till Mr. March finally observed, Salad was one of the favorite dishes of the ancients, and Evelyn, here a general explosion of laughter cut short the history of salads, to the great surprise of the learned gentleman. Bundle everything into a basket and send it to the Hummels. I'm sick of the sight of this, and there's no reason you should all die of a surfeit because I have been a fool, said Amy, wiping her eyes. I thought I should have died when I saw you two girls rattling about in the water, call it like two little kernels in a very big nutshell. A mother was waiting in state to receive the throng, sighed Joe, quite spent with laughter. I'm very sorry you were disappointed, dear, but we all did our very best to satisfy you, said Mrs. March in a tone of motherly regret. I am satisfied. I've done what I undertook, and it's not my fault that it failed. I comfort myself with that, said Amy, with a little quiver in her voice. I thank you all very much for helping me, and I'll thank you still more if you won't allude to it for a month, at least. No one did for several months, but the word fate always produced a general smile, and Laurie's birthday gift to Amy was a tiny coral lobster in the shape of a charm for her watch guard. Chapter 27 Literary Lessons Fortune suddenly smiled upon Joe and dropped a good luck penny in her path. Not a golden penny, exactly, but I doubt if half a million would have given more real happiness than did the little sum that came to her in this wise. Every few weeks, she would shut herself up in her room, put on her scribbling suit, and fall into a vortex, as she expressed it, writing away at her novel with all her heart and soul, for till that was finished, she could find no peace. Her scribbling suit consisted of a black woolen pinafore 
on which she could wipe her pen at will, and a cap of the same material, adorned with a cheerful red bow, into which she bundled her hair when the decks were cleared for action. This cap was a beacon to the inquiring eyes of her family, who during these periods kept their distance, merely popping in their heads semi-occasionally to ask with interest, does genius burn Joe? They did not always venture even to ask this question, but took an observation of the cap and judged accordingly. If this expressive article of dress was drawn low upon the forehead, it was a sign that hard work was going on. In exciting moments, it was pushed rakishly askew, and when despair seized the author, it was plucked wholly off and cast upon the floor. At such times, the intruder silently withdrew, and not until the red bow was seen erect upon the gifted brow did anyone dare address Joe. She did not think herself a genius by any means, but when the writing fit came on, she gave herself up to it with entire abandon and led a blissful life, unconscious of want, care, or bad weather, while she sat, safe and happy, in an imaginary world, full of friends, almost as real and dear to her as any in the flesh. Sleep forsook her eyes, meals stood untasted, day and night were all too short to enjoy the happiness which blessed her only at such times and made these hours worth living, even if they bore no other fruit. The divine afflatus usually lasted a week or two, and then she emerged from her vortex, hungry, sleepy, cross, or despondent. She was just recovering from one of these attacks when she was prevailed upon to escort Miss Crocker to a lecture, and in return for her virtue, was rewarded with a new idea. It was a people's cause, the lecture on the pyramids, and Joe rather wondered at the choice of such a subject for such an audience, but it took for granted that some great social evil would be remedied or some great want supplied by unfolding the glories of the pharaohs to an audience whose thoughts were busy with the price of coal and flour, and whose lives were spent in trying to solve harder riddles than that of the Sphinx. They were early, and while Miss Crocker set the heel of her stocking, Jo amused herself by examining the faces of the people who occupied the seat with them. On her left were two matrons 
with massive foreheads and bonnets to match, discussing women's rights and making tatting. Beyond sat a pair of humble lovers, artlessly holding each other by the hand, a somber spinster eating peppermints out of a paper bag, and an old gentleman taking his preparatory nap behind a yellow bandana. On her right, her only neighbor was a studious-looking lad absorbed in a newspaper. It was a pictorial sheet, and Joe examined the work of art nearest her. Pausing to turn a page, the lad saw her looking, and with boyish good nature, offered his half of the paper, saying bluntly, Want to read it? That's a first-rate story. Joe accepted it with a smile, for she had never outgrown her liking for lads, and soon found herself involved in the usual labyrinth of love, mystery, and murder, for the story belonged to that class of light literature in which the passions have a holiday, and when the author's invention fails, the grand catastrophe clears the stage of one half of the dramatic's personae, leaving the other half to exult over their downfall. Prime, isn't it? asked the boy as her eye went down the last paragraph of her portion. I think you and I could do as well as that if we tried, returned Joe, amused at his admiration of the trash. I should think I was a pretty lucky chap if I could. She makes a good living out of such stories, they say. And he pointed to the name of Mrs. S.L.A.N.G. Northbury under the title of the tale. Do you know her? asked Joe with sudden interest. No, but I read all her pieces and I know a fellow who works in the office where this paper is printed. Do you say she makes a good living out of stories like this? And Joe looked more respectfully at the agitated group and thickly sprinkled exclamation points that adorned the page. Guess she does. She knows just what folks like and gets paid well for writing it. Here the lecture began, but Joe heard very little of it, for while Professor Sands was prosing away about Belzoni, chops, scarabi, and hieroglyphics, she was covertly taking down the address of the paper and boldly resolving to try for the hundred-dollar prize offered in its columns for a sensational story. By the time the lecture ended and the audience awoke, she had built up a splendid fortune for herself, not the first founded on paper, and was already deep in the concoction of her story, being unable to decide whether the duel should come before the elopement or after the murder. She said nothing of her plan at home, but fell to work the next day, 
much to the disquiet of her mother, who always looked a little anxious when genius took to burning. Jo had never tried this style before, contenting herself with very mild romances for the local paper. Her experience and miscellaneous reading were of service now, for they gave her some idea of dramatic effect and supplied plot, language, and costumes. Her story was as full of desperation and despair as her limited acquaintance with those uncomfortable emotions enabled her to make it, and having located it in Lisbon, she wound up with an earthquake as a striking and appropriate denouement. The manuscript was privately dispatched, accompanied by a note, modestly saying that if the tale didn't get the prize, which the writer hardly dared expect, she would be very glad to receive any sum it might be considered worth. Six weeks is a long time to wait, and still longer time for a girl to keep a secret, but Joe did both and was just beginning to give up all hope of ever seeing her manuscript again when a letter arrived which almost took her breath away, for on opening it, a cheque for a hundred dollars fell into her lap. For a minute, she stared at it as if it had been a snake. Then she read her letter and began to cry, If the amiable gentleman who wrote that kindly a note could have known what intense happiness he was giving a fellow creature, I think he would devote his leisure hours, if he has any, to that amusement. For Joe valued the letter more than the money, because it was encouraging, and after years of effort it was so pleasant to find that she had learned to do something, though it was only to write a sensation story. A prouder young woman was seldom seen than she, when, having composed herself, she electrified the family by appearing before them with the letter in one hand, the check in the other, announcing that she had won the prize. Of course, there was a great jubilee, and when the story came, everyone read and praised it, though after her father had told her the language was good, the romance fresh and hearty, and the tragedy quite thrilling, he shook his head and said in his unworldly way, You can do better than this, Joe. Aim at the highest, never mind the money. I think the money is the best part of it. What will you do with such a fortune? Asked Amy, regarding the magic slip of paper with a reverential eye. Send Beth and Mother to the seaside for a month or two, answered Joe promptly. To the seaside they went, after much discussion and though Beth didn't come home as plump and rosy as could be desired, she was much better, 
while Mrs. March declared she felt ten years younger. So Joe was satisfied with the investment of her prize money and fell to work with a cheery spirit, bent on earning more of those delightful checks. She did earn several that year and began to feel herself a power in the house, for by the magic of her pen, her rubbish turned into comforts for them all. The Duke's daughter paid the butcher's bill, a phantom hand put down a new carpet, and the curse of the Coventrys proved the blessing of the marches in the way of groceries and gowns. Wealth is certainly a most desirable thing, but poverty has its sunny side, and one of the sweet uses of adversity is the genuine satisfaction which comes from hearty work of head or hand, and to the inspiration of necessity we owe half the wise, beautiful, and useful blessings of the world. Joe enjoyed a taste of this satisfaction and ceased to envy richer girls, taking great comfort in the knowledge that she could supply her own wants and need ask no one for a penny. Little notice was taken of her stories, but they found a market, and encouraged by this fact, she resolved to make a bold stroke for fame and fortune. Having copied her novel for the fourth time, read it to all her confidential friends, and submitted it with fear and trembling to three publishers, she at last disposed of it on condition that she would cut it down one third and omit all the parts which she particularly admired. Now I must either bundle it back into my tin kitchen to mould, pray for printing it myself, or chop it up to suit purchases and get what I can for it. Fame is a very good thing to have in the house. Cash is more convenient, so I wish to take the sense of meeting on this important subject, said Joe, calling a family council. Don't spoil your book, my girl, for there is more in it than you know. The idea is well worked out. Let it wait and ripen, was her father's advice, and he practiced what he preached, having waited patiently thirty years for fruit of his own to ripen, and being in no haste to gather it even now when it was sweet and mellow. It seems to me that Joe will profit more by taking the trial than by waiting, said Mrs. March. Criticism is the best test of such work, for it will show both unexpected merits and faults and help her do better next time. We are too partial. The praise and blame of outsiders will prove useful, even if she gets but little money. Yes, said Joan, knitting her brows. That's just it. I've been fussing over the thing so long I really don't know whether it's good 
bad or indifferent. It would be a great help to have cool, impartial persons take a look at it and tell me what they think of it. I wouldn't leave a word out of it. You'll spoil it if you do, for the interest of the story is more in the mind than it is in the actions of the people, and it will all be a muddle if you don't explain as you go on, said Meg, who firmly believed that this book was the most remarkable novel ever written. But Mr. Allen says leave out the explanations, make it brief and dramatic, and let the characters tell the story interrupted Joe, turning to the publisher's note. Do as he tells you. He knows what will sell and we don't. Make a good, popular book and get as much money as you can. By and by, when you've got a name, you can afford to digress and have philosophical and metaphysical people in your novels, said Amy, who took a strictly practical view of the subject. Well, said Joe, laughing, if my people are philosophical and metaphysical, it isn't my fault, for I know nothing about such things, except what I hear father say sometimes. If I've got some of his wise ideas jumbled up with my romance, so much the better for me. Now, Beth, what do you say? I should so like to see it printed soon was all that Beth said and smiled in saying it. There was an unconscious emphasis on that last word and a wistful look in the eyes that never lost their childlike candor, which chilled Joe's heart for a minute with a foreboding fear and decided her to make her little venture soon. So, with Spartan firmness, the young authoress led her firstborn on her table and chopped it up as ruthlessly as any ogre in the hope of pleasing everyone. She took everyone's advice and, like the old man and his donkey in the fable, suited nobody. Her father liked the metaphysical streak which had unconsciously got into it, so that was allowed to remain, though she had her doubts about it. Her mother thought that there was a trifle too much description. Out, therefore, it came, and with it many necessary links in the story. Meg admired the tragedy, so Joe piled up the agony to suit her, while Amy objected to the fun And with the best intentions in life, Joe quenched the sprightly scenes which relieved the sober character of the story. Then, to complicate the ruin, she cut it down one-third and confidingly sent the poor little romance, like a picked robin, out into the big, busy world to try its fate. Well, it was printed, and she got $300 for it. Likewise, plenty of praise and blame. Both so much greater than she expected that she was thrown into a state of bewilderment from which it took her some time to recover. 
You said, Mother, that criticism would help me. But how can it when it's just contradictory that I don't know whether I've written a promising book or broken all the Ten Commandments? Said poor Joe, turning over a heap of notices, the perusal of which filled her with pride and joy one minute, and wrath and dismay the next. This man says, an exquisite book, full of truth, beauty, and earnestness. All is sweet, pure, and healthy, continued the perplexed authoress. The next, the theory of the book is bad, full of morbid fancies, spiritualistic ideas, and unnatural characters. Now, as I had no theory of any kind, don't believe in spiritualism, and copied my characters from life, I don't see how this critic can be right. Another says, it's one of the best American novels which has appeared for years. I know better than that. And the next asserts that, though it is original and written with great force and feeling, it is a dangerous book. It isn't. Some make fun of it. Some overpraise, and nearly all insist that I had a deep theory to expound when I only wrote it for the pleasure and the money. I wish I'd printed the whole or not at all. I do hate to be so misjudged. Her family and friends administered comfort and commendation liberally. Yet it was a hard time for sensitive, high-spirited Joe who meant so well and had apparently done so ill. But it did her good, for those whose opinion had real value gave her the criticism which is an author's best education. And when the first soreness was over, she could laugh at her poor little book, yet believe in it still, and feel herself the wiser and stronger for the buffeting she had received. Not being a genius like Keats, it won't kill me, she said stoutly. And I've got the joke on my side, after all, for the parts that were taken straight out of real life are denounced as impossible and absurd, and the scenes that I made up out of my own silly head are pronounced charmingly natural, tender, true. So I'll comfort myself with that, and when I'm ready, I'll up again and take another.